The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see people tonight. So I want to take at least tonight, maybe a couple weeks, to review basic sitting instructions a little bit more formally than we normally do at the Sunday night group and uh, place it in the context of this whole path of practice. It's so important that we know what we're doing. I know it seems obvious, but more than anything, our mind, I think it's true to say that our mind likes to go on automatic pilot because uncertainty is hard work because it makes us uncomfortable. So we have to work really hard to figure it out so we know what we're doing. But imagine if we understood that, not just in terms of our spiritual practice or our mindfulness practice, but just generally in life. Imagine if we understood, fully integrated, the fact that we're never going to really understand it. And actually, the skillful way forward in life, whether it's in a relationship, in terms of a particular relationship, or spiritual practice, or just more generally, that the way forward is actually to get comfortable not, not knowing. So instead of like, OK, I got it figured out. I got my practice figured out. This is how you meditate. And then like we get established in that view. This is what you do with the mind. This is what you do if this happens. Got it all laid out. But instead, it's much more of a living thing, a living process. It's the same with you know, relationships. We can't have it all figured out. Generally, you know, if we have it all figured out, the relationship begins to die. It begins to feel static or dead a little bit or a lot. And it's the same in meditation practice. The way the Buddha would set it up, this path, and then specifically the meditation practice, is well, we're interested in the experience, the direct moment-to-moment -moment experience of stress, or the heart being tight, the mind being tight. And we're interested in the mind or the heart body being released. So this experience of whether in a moment the mind-body is tight or the mind-body is released, it's real clear now that it's moment by moment. So it's not just that we can get this one time, oh, I'm tight, and then I released. Because we know, like in the next moment, we can be tight again. We can be reacting, we can be pushing and pulling, struggling with experience. So the process of being mindful and being interested in contraction or release, it has to be moment to moment. It's a real shift because from our, our ordinary consciousness, ordinary point of view, we want to get someplace where we don't have to practice anymore. And the first thing we realize in practice is there is no such place. And then we really don't want to practice. <laughs> it's like, then we realize, 
that practice means agreeing, like because of our own interest, our own caring. It means agreeing to like this on the ongoingness. Wisdom doesn't like have vacations. It's not like there's an appropriate time where we don't actually have to show up and be aware. Because the the thing we discover initially that it's a hard work to keep showing up, how exhausting it is, how heavy it is actually in a funny way to see all of the different patterns that arise for us in our mind, all the different reactive patterns. Maybe, hopefully, a few wholesome patterns, and then the rest of the mix, all those unwholesome patterns. It's a heavy trip, but it's less heavy than being blind to them, being on automatic pilot, or pretending things are fine, or whatever escape we might have. So as hard as it is to keep showing up each moment, aware that it's like this now, aware that this pattern has been triggered, or these patterns have passed out of the mind. They're done. They're gone for now. That may seem like a heavy trip, but it's so much more light and alive than thinking that we can't do it. It's too much. I don't want to do it. It's too heavy. I don't want to see it. I'd rather just absorb into some you know, TV show, some thinking pattern, and just get lost in thought. And then if we keep going, even though it's a lot of work, we start to feel how enlivening it is. And we realize more and more we can tease out the doer. So initially, it seems like I've got to keep showing up. I've got to pay attention. I have to be mindful. I have to restrain myself from getting distracted, from getting lost in thought, lost in reactive thinking. But then we realize, you know, that the wisdom that understands how enlivening it is to be awake, to be present, that it actually it keeps itself going. And then it's much more the practice becomes getting out of the way, trusting that sometimes we'll cycle through times of being relatively disconnected and distracted, deluded and reactive, and then times of being relatively clear and awake and responsive and skillful. And we're not so much carrying this burden of, I have to be mindful. But initially, to overcome the great momentum of disconnection, as a personality, as an ego, we create something to oppose that tendency to be disconnected, to be distracted, to be lost in reactive patterns. We create this idea for ourselves, I'm going to be mindful. I'm going to be aware of how it feels in the body. I'm going to be aware of what the mind, how the mind is relating. So this is what the training of meditation is. It's, it's creating the context. We create ideal, in, in a perfect world, we create ideal circumstances to train the mind um, away in a, in a direction opposite of distraction, opposite of disconnection, opposite of denial, opposite of superficiality, opposite of autopilot. So it's not a, you know, mindfulness, when, when the mind is mindful, present, open, allowing, 
to very alive place. And you know how it is, like we have a day, a life, you know, where we had to really show up. It's very alive, we're interacting, everything's uncertain. It's like when we go home, we want to just get lost in a TV program or a novel or some superficial conversation. It just, we don't want to have to be sort of in that responsive, awake, we want to shut down. So in a way, initially, it's like developing this muscle, this, the tone, the tone of this muscle, that we actually have the capacity to be vividly present. It's actually surprisingly energizing. But initially, it feels exhausting because of the inertia. We've created so much momentum. We have so much attachment to the feeling of, of like, uh, Basically, I think the mind has aligned the sense of safety and security with the feeling of being dead. You know, it's like nothing to do. Just get me to the place where there's nothing to do. You know, I'm so full. I'm so sleepy. I'm so drunk. You know, it's like all of a sudden, not only can't we do anything. I mean, even if we wanted to, we couldn't do anything. We're just so kind of dead. And we kind of like that feeling going unconscious one way or another. Because in a way, we feel off the hook. In a way, we are, in a sense, off the hook. We're not learning anymore in those moments. You know, when we scan through, take like if we could quickly scan through the last week in some maybe visual way, and just sort of, in a great sweep, like all the hours of the last seven days, and how many of those hours the way that the mind was being absorbed in or dead to the world, how many of those hours we weren't learners? We weren't learning anything. The mind was just not in that clear, awake, sensitive place where it was like noticing if it does this, if it relates in this way, then it hurts like this. Or if the mind relates in this other way, then there's a sense of release and fullness like this. So we're participating in this world because we're not only uh, adding to it, right? Because every moment when we're awake, mindful, of course, we're relating to that moment in some way. And because we're mindful, we know how we're relating to the moment. And then we're noticing how, given the way we're relating to the moment, understanding the moment, responding to the moment, we're, we're seeing directly how that's affecting the moment. Whether the heart, in a sense, is getting more contracted or more released, depending on how we're understanding, how we're relating, how we're responding. So there's that direct learning. And not only in, in terms of how we're participating, because every moment we're showing up with our particular attitude, our particular point of view, our particular values, but also everybody else is showing up every moment. And so we're learning. We're not only learning in terms of what we do, what how we understand, but we get a sense to how other people are showing up, how the, what values they're bringing to the moment, their attitudes they're bringing to the moment, their sort of view, their understanding that they're bringing to the moment, and how 
they're being treated by the moment. You know, what's the response? What kind of feedback are they getting? And by by being awake in this way, we start having insight about suffering and the end of suffering. The Buddha points to this as the most relevant thing. Not theoretically suffering and the end of suffering or stress and the end of stress, but moment by moment through that simple, clear presence. I mean, it makes so much sense, doesn't it, that given that, I mean, nobody here would argue that human beings can learn. I mean, it's amazing what human beings can learn. Three-year-olds, four-year-olds learn their alphabet. They learn the whole English language or some language, usually. It's amazing how much we know. But it's also, in a sense, amazing how little we have focused in on the specific learning of stress and the end of stress through tracking our lived experience and really seeing how the mind can participate in the moment through its values, its attitudes, its points of views, and how some lead to stress and some lead to release. And then generalizing these lessons, these insights. Like, when we take things personally, it always hurts. And when we live from a more open, less attached, less identified place, the heart is always more released and free. Now, we could just believe that and then argue with people who have a different belief. Or we could, moment by moment by moment, confirm that truth. So it doesn't matter whether everybody says that's silly, because we have seen it over and over again that when this mind is taking things personally, getting attached, identified, it relates with reactivity, with greed and aversion, and deludedness, and it suffers. Things get tight. The mind, the heart feels heavy. And when, in those moments when the mind isn't attached, isn't identified, there's a sense of lightness and space and love, even. And the, the amazing thing that comes out of this work is, all of a sudden, what grows is this, not all of a sudden, but slowly, what grows is this trust in the mind or heart itself. And this relative, this growing independence of what other people think and say, including teachers, including religious and spiritual traditions. The whole point in any sort of spiritual system is to become independent, not to become dependent on a particular set of teachings or a particular teacher or community, like this common ground center. The whole point is to understand through our own careful continuous awareness, the truth about what works and what doesn't work, what attitudes, what values, what understandings lead to freedom, and what attitudes and values and points of view lead to suffering, lead to stress. That itself, that kind of uh, confidence before we have like full confidence, just the fact that we see that life, in a sense, can be figured out, can't be controlled, 
you know, I was saying earlier in the talk that being mindful means we're moving from this static place to this very alive place where there's a lot of learning. So we maybe can't sort of fix our happiness, create a circumstance that then becomes static. So now I have this static, perfect world that I inhabit, and I can really relax now because I've done it. And that's how we generally approach life. I get enough money, get enough security at my job, get enough physical health, get enough good people around me, and then I'll be done, you know? And I can kick back in life and enjoy it, finally, because I got there. But, you know, nobody gets there, of course. We think, I mean, this is the great irony, we think we're going to get there. If we just work hard enough, we just negotiate all the problems around us, then we'll get there, and then we can really kick back and enjoy it. So at first it gets really insecure, but in that insecurity we learn a lot. And we begin to see that it can be trusted deeply. And in trusting it more and more, we start to learn something about life. Basically we're learning that this heart, this mind, can completely handle the immensity of the insecurity in life. That actually, fundamentally, insecurity isn't a problem for anybody. It just from a particular point of view, a self-centered point of view, insecurity, uncertainty, is completely unacceptable. But that's because of the point of view. It's not the only point of view. So in our practice, in our formal sitting practice, you know, I could tell you, hey, try this point of view out. But I don't even need to, or the Buddha doesn't need to tell us what point of view to, to try out even though he does in a sense. But mostly what he tells us is to sit in a safe place in a comfortable way where you're not overwhelmed by pain in the body, you're not overwhelmed by disturbing sounds, you're not overwhelmed by you know, activity in the room, and you're not overwhelmed by your own guilt and remorse. If you are, go clean up your life first so you have enough harmony so when you sit down and meditate, you're not overwhelmed by guilt and remorse. And then in that relative stability of being physically comfortable, being in a room that's quiet, or being out in nature in a way that's quiet, quiet of you know, human activity at least, then just observe moment to moment with continuity. And the continuity is essential here, because we have to track the particular values and attitudes and points of view in the mind to see what they deliver whether it delivers tension or release from tension. So instead of somebody like the Buddha saying, all you need to do is this attitude, these values, this point of view, and you're golden. Because then our tendency would be to imitate those values and that attitude and that point of view. But if we're tracking our experience, we'll just notice like now there's this point of view or this attitude or these values. And we'll notice how it is energetically. Like, does the mind feel contracted? Is the, are those attitudes and values constricting? Or are they releasing? So the feedback, this is the great thing. If we're mindful with some continuity, the feedback is immediate. We're seeing how the point of view, the values, the attitudes in the mind, how, what they lead to directly. 
we don't need God to judge us. I mean, maybe there is, maybe there isn't a God. But the point is, wisdom in the mind will see definitively what is the result of the attitude, the values, the understanding that's present. So if we have a very narrow, self-centered, greedy values, attitude, point of view, and we're mindful, we're going to very clearly see what a tight, narrow world that is to be needy, to be fearful, to be greedy, to be manipulating, to get what we think we need. Anybody doubt that this is true? So just the question is, how many times more do we need to see that clearly so that automatically, naturally, the mind begins on its own without you having to intervene. The mind just begins not to go there, to that narrow, self-centered, greedy, tight place. Because it's learned through careful observation what it leads to. It's the same with other addictive behaviors. You know, if we observe very carefully, you know, just choose any addictive behavior, whether it's cigarettes or around particular, uh, around your, how you handle relationships, intimate sexual relationships, or relationship with bosses, or relationship with subordinates, and maybe you have sort of addictive patterns that you fall into. Well, you could try to just say, don't do that, Mark. Or you could just see if it's really an unskillful pattern, it should hurt. So observe carefully. If you find yourself falling into that, what you think is unskillful, we'll just see what it's like. And we'll learn. The same if we gravitate to something that seems to be skillful. If it's skillful, it will be releasing. So even in the simplicity of sitting practice, where we might like bring our attention to the body, just aware of the sensations of sitting and the predominant sensations as they come and go in the body, tracking them. This is the key, is to track them moment to moment. Not to just have a moment of being aware of the body or a moment of being aware of the breath in the body, or some people use hearing, a moment of being aware of hearing and there in the moment. But it's the continuity, being with the body, being with the body, being with the body, or being with the breath, being with the breath, being with the breath, aware, open, clear, relaxed. Then we'll notice in some moments the attitude about the breath or the values around the breath or the point of view of the breath is like this. And then the experience of being aware of the breath will be like this. There will be a consequence to the particular attitude. So for example, if you feel, I want to be the best goddamn meditator in the room. You know? <laughs> and so that's your attitude. And there you are, but you're mindful of wanting to be the best meditator in the room. They're watching. And you'll see how, maybe, you'll see. Well, does it get really tight? You know? Or does it lead to the experience of release? Or do you have the, the, the sense that, well, the breath is coming in and it's like this. The breath is going out less. And the mind gets distracted. You realize, well, it's just a distraction. It's like this. So there's a, a kind of accepting, allowing, but vividly present mind, values, attitude. And you notice how freeing it is not to have to judge things, not to have to compare, 
not to have to evaluate in terms of good and bad. And, and we just, just in this careful, continuous observation of being with the breath or being with the body and all the different attitudes that come up, and of course, also looking at the attitudes around the different distractions that arise when we're practicing with the breath or practicing with the body, we just start kind of making sense of the mind. And we begin to, to sort of just understand like, uh, almost like a fluency, a, a whole new vocabulary of suffering and non-suffering, or stress and non-stress. It's like over here in the in the area of stress, we see that when the mind thinks it's certain, when the mind is like fixed on certain meaning or certain belief, that hurts. When the mind is comfortable with not knowing, trusting more instead of needing nouns, seeing things more in terms of an unfolding process, where something fixed doesn't really, isn't needed, then things are much looser and easier and lighter. So we just get that like in terms of values. Values, attitudes, points of view that depend on fixed meaning, fixed belief, it's tight, it's narrow. Mind that doesn't depend on that fixed notion, fixed views, light and easy. Or sense of separation, sense of alienation, always tight sense of love, connection, wholeness, like uh, no center, that's very freeing. Just any sense of self, narrowness, hurts. When the mind sort of steps outside of that view and has a view of wholeness, like right now in this room, and you could just experiment right now, we could just play along this particular spectrum that I mentioned from feeling alone and separate and alienated to feeling home. Like, you could just use your, because because it's so programmed into us, it's pretty easy for us to realize that I'm this person here, and there are all these other people around me, and if they look at me, and you can look around the room now, you see there are a lot of people. You can have all kinds of judgments, like, that's the kind of person I wouldn't mind sitting next to, these other people. <laughs> And you just start, you know, notice that, that view of comparing and judging, how narrowing it is. You know, living in this world of self and other. And then it's almost like we just soften the gaze and just have a sense that tonight we're the Sunday night common ground community, you know, and that we're part of this vast community of human beings, past, present, and future, that are interested in awareness and really understanding the value of trusting awareness and inclusivity. Just having that vast sense of humanity, men and women with mind and bodies much the same as ours, having to deal with their life situation much the same that we have to do. You know, it's just like it loosens a sense of boundaries. You get a sense that we can really belong in this moment. It's not a mistake. And that essentially we're all in the same boat, having a mind and body. You see, it's a different reality. It's less tight. We can do it around, you know, so we can do it around certainty and on this end, not knowing and being okay with not knowing, not being dependent on meaning or belief or certainty or fixed notions. 
We can do it around separation and sense of wholeness or belonging. We can do it in terms of right and wrong, a world of right and wrong, good and bad. I'm good, I'm bad, I'm the same as you. To a world of just everything belongs. There aren't mistakes. Things are arising conditionally. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. So we can do it along a lot of these different spectrums. And uh, just sort of uh, uh, trusting that wisdom. You know, that this is so empowering. And, and just in a, the most basic way that we understand the lay of the land. I mean, it's not so much even that we can avoid uh, being caught or being stuck with these values, these attitudes, these points of view. But it isn't so toxic, it isn't so heavy knowing that there are these other, there's this other end, this other spectrum, I mean, this other end of the spectrum. And that sometimes, you know, through certain causes and conditions, we'll be forgetful, we'll get caught. But we know it's just a matter of not believing this is the only way. And the mind, wisdom, will gravitate back to a more expansive, a more fluid, a more open, a less fixed, a less alienated point of view. If we think we need to get over here, we push ourselves over here. So the way to migrate from these values, these attitudes, is simply when we're here to know that we're here. And to, the way to promote these, this view, right view, you know, wholesome view, skillful view, is when we're here to know we're here. This is the great thing. We don't have to fix it. We just have to be mindful. When we're, when we're in a narrow place as much as you can, notice how tight it feels. Notice how heavy it is. Notice how it's not working. That the ways that we tend to respond out of a narrow place don't tend to work very well in life. That alone will begin to shift things. Just the understanding, when we're in a narrow place, just that capacity to step out enough to know that we're in a narrow place, like the heart or mind that knows that there's the mind is in a narrow place is not a narrow place. You get that? So when, like, just imagine a narrow place you can get in. Maybe it's a lot of shame for some of you. Maybe it's a lot of anger. For me, it might be, like, a lot of defensiveness. So when we're in a tight, narrow place, if I have the capacity to clearly recognize, oh, the mind is really tight, really narrow, really defensive, really fearful, wanting to prove myself or wanting to protect myself or wanting people to understand me, you know, understand why I did something, wanted to like me. But just the understanding, oh, it's like this. This is what's going on. That's not the same as being lost in that point of view. So mindfulness is a step out. It's a step in the direction of forgiveness and patience and love. Now, all, all of a sudden, even though we may be dealing with the repercussions of this narrow point of view, we're all the way over here, forgiving and loving 
feeling part of this ancient tradition of people making space for imperfection, for neurotic imperfection, that infects all of our hearts. I mean, this is the kind of conditioning we have. We have this ancient conditioning. In Buddhist terms, we say greed, anger, and delusion as a summary of all of this toxic, neurotic, ancient conditioning. That understanding that it's like this, and forgiving, and accepting, and being patient with it, then we're over here. We're not over here. In the same way, if we've got a lot of love, and a lot of compassion, and we start getting really greedy, or really prideful, we may, you know, we may be feeling a lot of love, even universal love. But what's really going on in the mind is, I am so cool. <laughs> you know, it's just my capacity to love. And there will be all kinds of toxic, neurotic stuff like, I hope people notice. Maybe I should say something. <laughs> just in case. So we can, we can liberate out of really toxic stuff. We don't have to be, we don't have to seek out and destroy all of the tendency towards greed, anger, and delusion. We just have to realize that it's not self. That's the stepping out. We're realizing it's just a conditioned pattern with a certain amount of momentum. That's all it is. It's not self. That's a, that's a liberation. And then when the mind is in more beautiful states, more beautiful attitudes, we have to realize this is also just a conditioned pattern. It's not self. Otherwise, we're going to contaminate it and send ourselves, send the mind back into a narrow place. If we start taking this personally, I'm expansive. You guys are in such tight, narrow places. Let me teach about how to achieve, how to realize the expansive whole state of mind. You know, and we send ourselves back into this very narrow, stressful place because we've created an identity around beauty, around skillful qualities. All of this we learn just in being present. So when we formally sit, and there's so much value to the formal practice. Now, it's going to be different for different people, given your duties and responsibilities, whether you have kids at home, kind of jobs you have, the kind of health you have. <coughs> All of these things make a, make a difference. But whoever we are, whatever our circumstances, we can seek out situations that make it easier to develop the continuity of awareness. So we begin to see how certain attitudes, values, points of view have certain consequences. Other attitudes, points of views, values have other consequences. And be learning step by step, slowly becoming independent in the teachings. So we get that the real teacher isn't the set of teachings from the Buddha from 2,500 years ago. The real guru, the real teacher, is this moment-to-moment -moment tracking of our lived experience. And just noticing the relationship between the point of view in the mind, the attitude of the mind, and the world that's coming out of that attitude. The world we experience is 
has much more to do with the particular attitude of the mind in the moment than it does with whether we're male or female, rich or poor, living in Minnesota or living in, you know, Haiti. All these things seem so important, you know, whether we're 70 or 13. But more important than these, and I'm not saying those things aren't important. I would much prefer to be here than, you know, in Haiti, for example. Or I'd much prefer, you know, this kind of weather than 30 below. Or, you know, 90 degrees and 90% humidity. But more than the particulars is the attitude. What the mind does with the circumstances of the moment. What it's projecting or coloring, how it's coloring. And that we have to learn to track. That's not so easy to track. So we, we kind of develop our muscle by just tracking the breath, tracking sensation, tracking sound, learning to be continuous. It's the continuity of mindfulness that brings real power, sensitivity to the seeing, to the awareness. It's not like trying is going to make the mind sensitive. The mind naturally, organically becomes very, very powerful if we just have continuity. Knowing the breath, knowing the breath, knowing the breath. Knowing the breath without adding anything to the experience. A moment of knowing the breath without adding anything to the experience. And then the next moment, knowing the sensations of the breath without adding. All it takes is a few of those moments of that simple, clear, relaxed presence. And all of a sudden, the mind is profoundly sensitive. I'm not kidding. We're just talking 10 seconds, 30 seconds, 40 seconds of continuity, and you'll see a remarkable change in the sensitivity of the mind. And if you're not noticing that, then you may be kind of mindful, but kind of pretending to be mindful. So to really be mindful means fully, wholly showing up to the experience, as if it's the only thing that matters. Vividly present with the breath or with the body, the sensations of the body sitting or hearing or whatever anchor your mind likes to work with. Really taking it up as a training ground. I keep coming back here, unless there's a very big distraction in my I keep coming back to my training ground to develop the muscle, the tone of continuity. So then when a big distraction does arise, then the mind, because of the continuity, it's really going to see this distraction and the way the mind is relating to it and whether it's leading to suffering or the release to suffering. Or maybe there's a distraction and initially the mind is reacting with greed and aversion and we get in a really tight, narrow place and then that pain of that tight, narrow place kind of wakes up the mind and the mind looks at the attitude and realizes, okay, Narrow attitude, experiences suffering. Narrow attitude, experiences suffering. I wonder if they're related. You know, and then if there's a moment of real awakening, and without anybody doing anything, the tight, narrow attitude falls away. The tension that was arising in conjunction with the tight, narrow attitude disappears. There's a moment of self-liberation right there, and the mind realizes that. Oh, narrow place, no narrow place. Suffering. No suffering. And there's the realization, oh, what changed? There was a narrow attitude, an un unskillful point of view, 
it fell away, the pain associated with it also fell away. Oh, it's pretty easy. That's, the, that's really the, the recognition that, oh, it's so easy. Because suffering happens because of what the mind's doing. The whole path that the Buddha taught isn't about attaining some special place. It's about stop doing, the mind stopping doing what doesn't work. That's it. It's not about heaven. It's about the mind not projecting narrowness, not sort of falling over and over again into narrow states of mind, contracted states of mind, usually built around a sense of self, or almost always built around a sense of self, a separate sense of self, a permanent sense of self, a good sense of self, a bad sense of self, a sense of self that's the same as anyone. It doesn't really matter what, how the self is defined, but it's the sense of being a part that causes the problem. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice. We have 15 minutes to hear from people what you've been learning in your practice, questions you have about the practice. What comes to mind? Yeah, Chris. I know what sorts of things are a waste of time. I, I don't know what sorts of things are not a waste of time. So, yeah, some ideas. Well, you know, just in the context of the talk tonight, clearly seeing when the mind is relating or acting in unproductive ways, clearly seeing that you're wasting your time isn't a waste of time. You know, so if you're going to waste your time, or just generalizing that, if you're going to act in unskillful ways, then the most important thing is to clearly see what's happening. Because if it's really unskillful and you clearly see it, you're setting in motion the undermining of that tendency. Nobody consciously, with wisdom, does unskillful things. If we're really doing unskillful things, this is why forgiveness really makes sense. because. You can't really do unskillful things intentionally, consciously, with wisdom. So it just means we're misunderstanding what's going on. That's what leads to stupid, unskillful, unproductive actions. We're just not understanding what's happening. So if you get really clear about what's not working, that can help. And then let it move your heart like, oh, this hurts. I care about this pain. I care about the consequences of this, these unskillful actions, these unskillful attitudes. I care about it. I care about the effect on the people around me. And really, notice that you actually do care about it. Like that's a force in the mind. The mind is being energized to do something different. And then we have to be patient because that force may be this amount, but the momentum of acting unskillfully may be here. But the more we see that this doesn't work, this balance will shift. The inspiration to be a different way, to relate a different way, will grow. And the momentum to act in an unskillful way will be starved slowly. And it will get weaker. And it will shift. And at some point, we won't do that anymore. Because the wisdom that understands it doesn't work is greater than the ancient momentum to act in that way or to relate in that way. 
That's hard, though, because we just want to be done with it. When we un- Once we start understanding this doesn't work, we just would love to be done with it. But that's called greed, you know, and it doesn't work that way. We have to understand how things actually change. Okay. I think I'm hearing you. I guess what I'm looking for is, you know, after the work's done, and there's that time in the evening, the four hours before it's time to sleep, mm-hmm. um, that's a time. Like, specifically, what are like, productive activities that are healthy for... And I, I go on the web and I look up how the world's going to hell and we're running out of oil and mm-hmm. we're going to attack Iran and all this crazy stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's an utter waste of time. I mean, there's very little new information minute to minute and, and it's you know unhealthy and you know, I'm just thinking about that. But I'm, so I guess I'm just looking for what, you know... Stay busy. And good things. Service. Yeah, yeah. And spiritual community. You know, I mean, for some people, for periods of time when it's really important, they may come to Common Ground four, five, six times a week between the morning programs and the evening programs just because it's a protected environment. And it's not so much that they should or need to do it, but they don't want to be doing what they would otherwise be doing. Volunteering is a great way, here or any place that is doing good work in the world. Um, uh, cleaning, you know, like just uh, creating beautiful spaces that help minds calm down, that help minds settle down. You know, organizing, simplifying. These are sort of trustworthy activities that we can do. Prepare for difficult times, not out of fear, but because we want to be able to, to like a, a nurturing or mothering energy, we want to be able to take care. Because we know that things change, and things can get worse, and we want to be prepared. So having money in the bank, having you know, things organized in ways. That's helpful. And it's energizing. You know? And we feel enlivened by sort of doing those kinds of things. Just like when you run into people like that, it's so inspiring you know, to see somebody who's got their life Organized, and it's not like a heavy neurotic trip, but it's a real joy. Yeah, Eric. Um, maybe made the mistake of listening to the radio a lot today. <laughs> um, and what I thought a lot about was um, forgetting and remembering um, how that is or isn't important. Um, so I just found myself eager to And one of the problems is, of course, that we have to appreciate that media these days is profit-driven. So it's a little bit like cigarettes. You know, they have every incentive to get you hooked. And, uh, and they're really smart about it. You know, they know what gets our attention and what doesn't. And thoughtful, balanced uh, reporting is not exciting. Um, but, you know, and other things are exciting. Yeah, it occurred to me, you know, should I bring up anything today? And, you know, my sense of it is that what uh, what's really important about 
tragic events is that we understand that uh, this heart, this mind, is vulnerable to insecurity. And then once we understand that, it really wakes us up, like we really want to pay attention. And getting lost in fear doesn't help us pay attention. What helps us pay attention is feeling balanced and relaxed and healthy. Then we can pay attention. Then we can sh keep showing up. And we feel resilient, like being present and being present. And things are beautiful and we're present. And things get tough and we're present. That's what will make a difference if there's another terrible event or another beautiful event. The capacity to be able to show up and to show up and to show up. This is what we need to remember. We don't need to remember that 3,000 people died. We, we need to remember that paying attention is important. And you know, a lot of what happened after 9-11 was different ways of not paying attention and not learning the lessons from history. Over and over and over again, human beings have suffered because we're not paying attention. We're paying attention in an imbalanced way. We pay attention to certain things over and over again, and we ignore other things over and over again. And the thing about mindfulness practice, the whole point, even in the little ways, you know, it seems insignificant to be mindful of the breath, but we're learning to be indiscriminate, inclusive. It's not like we're trying to pay attention to one but not the other aspect of experience. But the mind is opening. You can't be present with the breath without being open to the present moment entire, in, in its entirety. So we're really learning to be uh, inclusive. And that way, our view isn't coloring the information that's coming in, the sensitivity. And so Dhamma, the way it is, begins to transform our views. But instead, if we're looking through our view, if we're getting our information through the lens of our view, it's only going to be reconfirming what we already think over and over and over again. So I'm glad you brought it up. It's probably something we're all, a lot of us at least, are sensitive to today. Just appreciating that when we listen to people, we have to be aware not only of what they're saying, but the intention behind what they're saying, what their motivation is. And we can't assume that people have good motivations. Even though they may be wise in some ways, have some real information, and even though it might be colored in really beautiful colors, like a lot of the reporting today was. But a lot of it was uh, having something that would like strum certain heartstrings because that pulls people in. And we have to ask ourselves, is that what needs to be done? Can we instead sort of be present to that and understand what's really going on? I mean, just think about how the different images from 9-11 have been abused over the last 10 years over and over and over again. Everything from selling products to political, you know, using for political purposes, mostly used to confuse people, you know, to use fear to confuse people, as opposed to drawing us together, helping us understand how it is that people harm people. 
little bit more time, maybe time for one more comment or question. Anything else come to mind? Yeah, Jan. Maybe a little louder. You're going to feel what? Yeah. Especially in the transition, like as we begin to see that being the doer, being the controller is heavy, hard to bear, and we begin to wonder, like, is there another way, like, and you called it being at this sense, of doer, controller, being. And from this point of view, looking at the idea of just being seems passive and seems a little dead. But the question, the important question is, what is the actual experience of being as opposed to being the doer? But just being. Because being actually is an incredibly alive place. It's like this nimble point where all the energy of the universe is there in this nimble place. It's not afraid of being still, but it's also not afraid of doing. Right? So being doesn't mean not doing. It just means the doing isn't coming from a narrow, self-centered place. Love, just think about the beautiful acts of love. I mean real love, not sort of pretend love. Where people do fearless things that change the world. But they're not trying to be seen. They're not trying to make a point. They're just, their life is living through them. And so this is, we have to see this. And this actually happens just with being the breath. Being the awareness. Being the moment that knows it's like this you'll start to feel, in moments at least, if you practice regularly enough, feeling very enlivened, very powerful, very stable, very real, not disconnected, not passive, not flat, not what we imagine the experience of being still would be like. It's just the opposite. The emotions are so alive and so rich and so trustworthy. It's not like we're cutting ourselves off from life by doing this practice. But that will be the impression we have. So I, want, I don't want to negate your point, because I think it's a really good point. It does seem scary. And there is a certain death involved. We are letting the doer die. Without the doer dying, we don't move over here. At least temporarily, the mind has to abandon its identification with being the doer, being the one in control, in order to have moments of being free and open and just letting things be, and including letting the energy of life be, the energy of love and compassion be, the energy of clarity, like really seeing things as they are. So we, it's not like we don't understand what's right and wrong. We may see it very clearly. And then the response comes out of that, clarity. 
And we'll leave it here. Thanks for the nice comments. Let's take a few seconds to take a breath or two together and let go of the words. Just appreciate these wise teachings. Appreciate the wholesome community. Just appreciate our own interest, being grateful to be connected, to be inspired to practice, and to aspire to become part of the causes and conditions leading to real peace in our hearts and in the world and freedom from suffering in our hearts and in the world. So may this be so. And thanks again, everybody, for coming. Thanks to Marta, our program host tonight. If you have questions about the center, you can see Martha. She has a few announcements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.